What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, uh, hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Jazz, the two-man power trip of wrestling. If he don't 
don't do no more talking at all. That windpipe don't look too good to me. Did we do a good job, David, huh? You look like you're sick. You look done. like you're mad at me. I'm telling you what here? these guys have done. Hey, I do. let now me tell you something right David, now. They're taking him out. They're taking him out to the garbage heap, to the dump where he belongs. You might as well shine those belts up, put them up in a tournament. We'll whip every team in professional wrestling. Ain't going to take more than 15 minutes or so. And then we'll be the world tag team champions. There was the competition. This is the two-man power trip of wrestling brought to you today and powered by Keensburg Subway. This coming Saturday, May 26th in Keensburg, New Jersey, WWE legend King Kong Bundy will be appearing there from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. For information, call 732-787-2172 and make your plans to come down to the subway in Keensburg, New Jersey, located at 304 Main Street, and you will meet King Kong Bundy, the WWE legend, on that day, May 26th. So make your plans to join us right now at the Keensburg Subway. And if we didn't convince you right here, stay tuned to the end of this episode as you will be hearing from the legend himself, King Kong Bundy, about this upcoming appearance at the Keensburg Subway. And that is just here to come in a little while. But if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad. And as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner, the one and only John Paz. And John, I thought at first we were just planning on a nice little chit-chat with our good friend James E. Cornett. But we got a nice little curveball thrown in and we are throwing on King Kong Bundy to this episode as a special little surprise here for everybody. So this is going to be one hell of an episode with two gigantic personalities that always have a lot to say and we're going to strap your strap in, get the seatbelt, click it, let's go. We are going to start off with Jim Cornette, who returns to our show for an unprecedented fourth time. And every time Jim Cornette comes on, there's always something to talk about. And this time it was weird because we were promoting a Kickstarter campaign that he has uh, going on, but it was ending and he didn't really need our help because the thing was funded within 24 hours. And I don't know if that just speaks to the fact that Jim Cornette uh, has a massive fan base and still has a complete stranglehold on professional wrestling, or it's because the project itself is just really cool and a lot of wrestling fans can uh, relate to what they were trying to fund in this professional wrestling comic book that features stories from not just Jim Cornette's career, but really all-time legendary stories. And we'll kind of get into that here in a minute. I'll let John give you some of the details about the Kickstarter campaign that Jim Cornette had funded. Didn't really need our help, but we still talk about it at great length. But we get to talk about so many other cool things. And of course, we talk about the Jim Cornette Experience, his podcast. We talk about the StarCast event that Jim Cornette uh, is nah, I'm not sure he's going to be a part of it, but just talking about the impact that that group has had on wrestling as of late, as well as the all-in show, which had just sold out days before uh, we had recorded this interview with Jim Cornette. And then, of course, it's pretty much a greatest hits of some of the things that we could come up with in talking with Jim Cornette. We talk about a lot of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, and we kind of dive into somebody we haven't talked about with Jim, and that's our tag team partner from the Triple Threat, the franchise Shane Douglas and there's a question in there that I have never heard Jim Cornette answer and we get to it in this interview and I'm not going to spoil it right away so I kind of want you to to settle in and get ready for that 
But, John, in addition to Jim, I'll throw it to you first and then get it back to me, and we'll talk about King Kong Bundy quickly. But with Cornette coming back, obviously, you can't deny it. He's uh, If he's ready and available to come on, we're going to have him. And, again, just gold coming from the Louisville lip as he's talking about this funded Kickstarter campaign. We'll do all we can to get more information out there about it, but the cult of Cornette stepped up, and uh, they really funded that thing in record time. Yes, Chad. Very, very cool project we're working on with Kickstarter. Jim Cornette behind the curtain. It's going to be a lot of real pro wrestling stories, obviously in comic book form. Very, very cool stuff. I jumped on it immediately. Even when I jumped on it, which I thought was immediately, it was already way over the goal. So now they're at like stretch goal by stretch goal by stretch goal, and they made like 70000 I think they wanted twenty or something, and they made seventy. So he, I mean, absolutely crushed and absolutely crushed it with ease. So it shows you that not only does he have a huge fan base, he's got a huge fan base that wants to support him, put money into him, and really get you know a great comic book and a great investment out of it. So I think that's really cool. And another thing that's cool, a part of that project, it's these cool Midnight Express lithographs. And I, you know, I'm going to be a mark, and I'm going to admit it. I wanted one, and I and I and I put the money in to buy one. I'm going to get one of those lithographs, and it's going to go with my awesome Midnight Cornet, uh, excuse me, Midnight Express and Jim Cornet book. So I'm going to put those in my office side to side, and it's going to look really cool. So I can't wait for that project to come out. It's, it's so cool. I just love it. And there's going to be a lot of cool stories in there that we do go in depth in this interview on. But like you mentioned, we do talk about Starcast, we do talk about All In, and we do talk about how he was contacted to do it. But he will not be there because it is not his audience. While he was proud of Cody, obviously, you know, he was a very good friend of Dusty. So he's very proud of his son, Cody, and what he's been able to do and how he's been able to break away from WWE and get released. But really kind of turn in Vince's face and become super successful at everything he's doing. But Cornette knows, obviously, with his comic book that came out and what he's been able to do and how much money he makes per appearance, you know, stuff like that. He knows he's got that fan base out there. He knows he can make that money. And then the flip side, there's that other fan base that doesn't like Cornette but really supports Cody Rhodes and the Bullet Club and Kenny Omega and the Bucks and those guys. So, you know, Cornette at least notices that audience, respects them to a certain degree as long as they respect him. But we do go all in on all in at Starcast, so that's a fun part of the interview. And then you know you were mentioning about Shane Douglas. That is a good thing you had, that you asked the interview about. Very cool. He never really touched on that subject before. Obviously, we're going to go a little in depth in that question and go a little deeper. And Shane Douglas does play a major role in that. And of course, we do talk about MLW and his split with his two podcasts, the Drive Through and the Experience why they are no longer with MLW, and somehow, some way, with that, there was no heat, which we're shocked. You know, I hate to say this because, you know, we both love Jim Cornette. We're both very, you know, good friends with Jim. I hate to say it, we were shocked to see that there was no heat between Court Bauer, MLW, and James E. Cornette. You know, you mentioned a great thing there about how there's people who don't like Jim Cornette, like, you know, and support the Bucks and Cody and, and all that stuff. But, you know, the people that they, they go down the middle of uh, the Russo camp, the Cornette camp, the Bischoff camp, and everybody hates this guy. Everybody loves this guy. But it's nice that on this show we can kind of fall into each bin and, and be fair towards everybody. And that's something that I really love about being able to have on the guests that we do uh, because it's never about – either the exposure of getting a, co- a negative comment or, or, or getting something, you know, for clicks or for downloads. 
it's not about that. On this show, we like to give everybody the platform, and that is really cool. Uh, just about the guests overall and having Jim come back for a fourth time. But we got to throw in here that, you know, we're, we're giving you a little bit of an added extra. And this was just the basically in the can getting ready to publish a Jim Cornette episode when John hits us out of left field and we got King Kong Bundy coming on the show. So I don't want to real, I don't want to, uh, you know, undersell it. He's coming to the Keensburg subway. We've obviously promoted many events for Keensburg Subway in the past. You know, somebody that's very tied into the Keensburg Subway on this show. <clears throat> and uh, we want to promote this the right way. So King Kong Bundy is coming on. And if you're in the New Jersey area and you can get down to Keensburg, New Jersey, this coming Saturday from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., you can meet King Kong Bundy. And if you've never met King Kong Bundy, you're in for a treat because he gives you your not even money's worth, your time's worth, because he is so interactive. He is so much fun. He's great with kids. He He's great with, with fans, answers a lot of questions, and sometimes may challenge you a little bit on uh, what you have to ask. So, John, we got King Kong Bundy on the show, and I'm sure at some point we'll, down the road we'll have him on for more of a, a more in-detail interview, but this was still cool to hit some high points and promote the Subway appearance. But uh, never bad to have on the human or walking condominium, whichever one you want to call them. Yes, a uh, lot of fun having on King Kong Bundy. Very cool to be able to get a man of his stature and his iconic legendary status as far as being a, a larger-than-life character, as far as being a part of the Hulk Hogan era, the rock and wrestling era of the WWF which really set the business off, if you think about it. I mean, that era is so synonymous with just larger-than-life characters, huge names, huge business, huge money, huge everything, and nothing could be quite better than getting a WrestleMania main eventer, and obviously WrestleMania 2 in that steel cage versus the biggest of them all, Hulk Hogan. is pretty damn epic, so it's pretty cool to get on King Kong, buddy. I'm going to be uh, you know, enjoying spending a, a day with him on Saturday, at the, at the subway. And then of course, we're going to be announcing some business that we'll be doing with him in the not so distant future as well. So, you know, a little TMPT KKB team up, not so bad, uh, all the way around. And it starts this Saturday at Kingsburg subway. Oh yeah. This is, uh, definitely going to be a, uh, a summer of Bundy with the two man power trip. And we, uh, we, we definitely can't, uh, we can't question that at all uh and it's going to be a great episode folks to so strap in for jim Cornette and king kong bundy here in just a minute but we we talked about it at length on the two uh, on the triple threat and i just got to thank everybody again who came to tmpt con 2 in richmond this past weekend it was a lot of fun and we're still getting a lot of great feedback uh whether it's on twitter or on facebook people sharing the pictures and giving a little a uh, little, little detailed uh, recaps. It's been very cool. And the video of David Arquette, either uh, at the convention or what he was doing uh, at the wrestling school that he was working out at, that's starting us to, to kind of roll out and hit the uh, the dirt sheets. So it's very cool to see that it all came out of our uh, event. Oh, and the picture with him and New Jack and the scream knife. I mean, that's uh, that's pretty epic in its own. But thank you to everybody who came down. And if you're listening to this, we appreciate it. And hopefully uh, we see you in 2019 and uh, maybe some big news down the road with that. So, John, we already talked about the Keensburg Subway appearance of King Kong Bundy this Saturday from 12 to 3, and we are ready to get it on the road here for this great episode. Two guests for the price of one. So, John, do what you do best. Hit him with a little bit of two-man power trip of wrestling business, and let's get it on over first to Jim Cornette and then over to KK, KKB, the big guy, 
King Kong Bundy. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rhodes, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTofWrestling.com. And for all you Android users, please hit us up on Google Play or Player FM. And all you iOS users, please check us out on TuneIn Radio, Automatic, Spotify, and now iHeartRadio. And now, without any further ado, he is the Louisville Lip. He is the Louisville Slugger. He is a pro wrestling, wrestling observer newsletter and NWA Hall of Famer. You may know him from managing the legendary Midnight Express. He is JT, good old Jim Cornette. Enjoy. Joining us back here on the line for an unprecedented fourth time with the two-man power trip is quite possibly, we've said it the other three times he's been on, I'm going to say it again, if he's not the greatest manager of all time, he is definitely up there. He will not humbly say that, but I will say it for him again. He's the one and only James E. Cornett. Mr. Cornett, welcome back to the two-man power trip. And an unprecedented fourth time, because nobody has been stupid enough to do this four times, is what you're saying. <laughs> no, you beat you, out a you, couple. <laughs> you've hornswoggled somebody for three, but nobody's been stupid enough to come back for four helpings of this this type of treatment. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Number three, we, we're on the cusp with a couple, but you're the, you, you took the bait. I got to say, John hoodwinked you again and got you back for number four. I've been bamboozled, hornswoggled even. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But we're so happy to have you back. And there's always something going on with you. And there's always some cool stuff floating around. And, and there's a lot of stuff we want to touch on tonight. 
But uh, I want to kind of talk about this uh, Kickstarter that you had going here with this Jim Cornette Presents Behind the Curtain, The Real Pro Wrestling Stories. Now, we don't have to help you fund it because this thing literally blew out of the water in 24 hours. So our job here is already done, so you're welcome. But just tell us a little bit about this. This is an awesome project with you and IDW. IDW, if nobody knows, has re just brought back to the, uh, to the forefront in the graphic novel world some of your favorites like G.I. Joe and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the Ghostbusters and all these great titles, but now you're teaming up with them for this great project. Well, yeah, you know, I was a comic book collector when I was just a little kid. I started with some classic Marvels from the early 60s that I got from my cousins when I was at my aunt's house and bored when I was like six years old, and, and it became an obsession. I was obsessed with comics even before I was obsessed with wrestling. Of course, there's one thing that's in common in my life is I'm always obsessed with something. But anyway, so now, you know, 50 years later, here we are. The rest is history, as they say. Uh, IDW reached out and contacted me. Uh, the artist and writer behind the Andre the Giant Closer to Heaven graphic novel, uh, 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 Brandon Easton and Dennis Medry, are the team that's working on it. And, and you know, everybody just really uh, really clicked right off the bat, and we thought we want to keep these stories alive. Uh, it's, it's stories not only for wrestling fans, but also... Because of the nature of them, they're more, you know, truth is more incredible than fiction, as they say. And uh, these stories uh, are interesting to people that aren't wrestling fans, whether it's, you know, the story of how Sputnik Monroe desegregated, uh, or was responsible for desegregating sporting events in the South, or or whether it was the story of Ric Flair's plane crash, or the, the behind-the-scenes uh, take on Jerry Lawler and Andy Kaufman that people still talk about 35 years later, whatever, from all eras of wrestling. Uh, going back to the pioneer days and, and, and it, it, it blew up. Like you said, we, we funded it in 24 hours. Then we hit the first stretch goal in like three days. And so far we've added, I think it's a 16 or 20 pages total to the book. I've lost track plus the Kickstarter. If we reach uh, the next level, which we're almost there and it'll be the final one. We, we close up on Thursday night, the 17th. But then the, the Kickstarter folks get a hardcover edition of the graphic novel. And there's a special collector's UV treatment on the covers of the regular editions. And there's a bookmark. And, and the artists are doing sketches of me and the Midnight Express and just uh, for lithographs, all kinds of cool stuff. But anyway, uh, you don't have much time. But if you want to jump in on it, it's uh, tinyurl.com slash corny Kickstarter. And, uh, and we're going to bring it home strong, but that's going to be uh, toward the fall or winter time. The finished product will be out. And, you know, we've had a lot of great feedback on it. Obviously, people have been turning cartwheels. So that, that's one of the many things that I'm trying to do to keep me off the streets at night. Uh, you know, <laughs> keep me uh, keep me home and employed. Uh, the, the podcasts are doing well. Uh, the experience and drive through both hit their record months for downloads in, in the month of April. We pretty much hit about three quarters of a million downloads, which is ridiculous. From two years ago, I was saying I added up all the listenership of the podcast and made a big deal that by November, we were going to have had a million downloads that year. Right. And, and about three years later, now it's uh, three quarters of a million for the month of April, but at the YouTube check corny YouTube, by the way, tinyurl.com slash corny YouTube. I love those tiny Earl. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the YouTube numbers are, are blowing up. People want to hear about these these stories about wrestling. And for whatever reason, my take on a variety of things. Uh, I just found out there's formaldehyde in baby powder. 
<laughs> and, I, and I had stern words for the people who did that on the, one of the latest uh, Jim Cornette experiences. So it, you never know what's going to come up. Oh, I know from the YouTube perspective, I know just from when we clip our show and we put something up. I mean, it's like instantly you start to see the uh, you, you start to see the response and the people and they get so like, I mean, they start arguing, they start fighting in the comments of YouTube videos, but your podcast, I mean, look, I, I, I'm not going to blow smoke up your fanny just because you're on the line, but it, it's well, one. I, I sincerely <laughs> hope you won't try to do it, whether we're speaking on the phone or not. <laughs> but I mean, it's one of the, could be dangerous. that's worse than formaldehyde and baby powder smoke up the fanny. <laughs> it's one of the only shows that I'll listen to outside of doing this show, just because I, I really, I never know what the people are going to send in to ask you. And kind of never know what you're going to say next in terms of uh, maybe a story that you've told once before, but maybe you throw a little nugget back in about something else. I mean, your podcasts have taken on a life of their own, and obviously they're evolving even more as we speak, you know, as you kind of start to move it's into all, it's, it's My podcast has almost turned into like that that creeping green crud that, that infested Stephen King and Creep Show. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, that's... That's a great reference, but it's so cool to see. And I mean, obviously, you you know, I don't know what you thought you were going to get into when you did podcasting originally, but obviously the drive through the experience, you know, is this everything you ever thought more basically where you're at at this point with it? I, actually, I just started the podcast as a way to meet girls. I don't really know what it, <laughs> no, I mean, um, you know, actually it just, uh, we, we started it because uh, it was just something to do to tell some stories and, and connect with my really uh, uh, devoted fans, both of them. And then, you know, like I said, suddenly it, it started blowing up with a lot of, and sometimes, you know, like you said, we talk about things that aren't related to wrestling and, and that gets as much, if not more consternation, uh, and reprobation and, uh, 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 feedback as, as the wrestling stuff, especially when I take on, you know, a terrorist organization like the NRA, or the, you know, uh, treasonous Republicans that intend to bring an end to our way of life and destroy the global economy again, mm. and just things like that. Yeah, we know, uh, yeah, we definitely know that you, you definitely don't shy away from anything, and, and in our secondary show that we do with Shane Douglas, uh, we've shied away from the politics, but you and Shane, I mean, look, you want to talk about dream matches? Oh and, my God, you I wanna... thought first, <laughs> the last time I talked to him, I thought he was serious until I realized he was just winding me up, and there's no way that anybody could could love that buffoonish orange orangutan that's in our White House. So, but I, I thought for a minute Shane was serious that he had that he had lost his mind. One of those errant chair shots from Bobby Eaton in 1989 <laughs> had, had scrambled his brains. But then I realized he was just winding me up. Oh. And, and I'm sure Shane is as devoted a Democratic Socialist as I am. Yeah, maybe you get him on the line, you'll ask him that. He'll have a uh, he'll have an answer for you. But yeah, that's a WrestleMania main event in the uh, in the making is the two of you on both sides for a political debate. But that's a different story for a different day. I want to stick with the podcast here. So now, you know, you've gone on and you kind of, you're moving away from MLW uh, from what it looks like. And, and what's going to be going on next with the experience in the drive-thru? I mean, you've created this world that uh, your fans and the uh, the cult of Cornette have kind of responded to. So what's next here for Jim Cornette? Well, and, and now don't, uh, don't uh, start gossip. Uh, amongst the folks as to me and MLW, you know, I've been friends with Court Bauer for some time and we're cool, but I've been under the MLW umbrella for some time. But recently we made the announcement a couple weeks ago, we've gone out on it. We're an, we're an outlaw podcast now. <laughs> we're independent. We've gone out on our own and, and there's no heat with court. And, and he made the same announcement uh, that, uh, you know, he thanked me for my five happy years and I thanked him for the platform. But 
I just noticed that we, Brian Last, my co-host and I, we don't play well with others. And sometimes, you know, people that are associated with me get the residual heat. And sometimes I'm associated with other people in groups that I don't necessarily see eye to eye with. So I like to do my own thing now. As I mentioned a few years ago, I got out of the wrestling business and in the Jim Cornette business. And uh, so, so we're going independent with the podcast just because that way we stand or fall on our own merits. If anybody is grouped with me and, and I, I cause, you know, like terroristic threats to come down on people, it's, you know, now it'll only be, it'll only affect me and vice versa. You know, sometimes you're, you're, there's, there's one SOB in every crowd and you're always in there with a group with somebody that you're like, uh, you know, so I'm staying away from group things, doing my own thing. The podcast world is uh, is quite the uh, the cutthroat world, and everybody's got a podcast now. If you've got a voice, you can throw on a recorder, you can publish it, you can do whatever you want with it. But I kind of find it interesting when other wrestling personalities get involved and they start to kind of go back and forth. And I'm not saying you with anybody specifically, just in general, that the podcasting platform with the wrestling personalities has almost taken on you know a feud like it would in the, in, in, the, in the wrestling ring, where it kind of you know develops one comment here, one comment there, and then it's like all out war you know unfolding right in front of your uh, your eyes or in this case your ears well yeah that's the thing with uh, a podcast now the people like to listen to the podcast more than they like to watch the wrestling shows because they know that the podcasts are the only thing that are real that's where the guys are really saying what they really mean and you know if you're in a wrestling television program or on a wrestling show these days they think ah that's all bullshit but on the podcast that stuff's real so there you have it now, lately in the news, obviously, Cody Rhodes is coming up a lot and All, All In is coming up and they sold out. And I know you made a comment on, you know, you're pretty proud that uh, Cody was able to do that. And it's pretty impressive. But what are, what are your real thoughts on, you know, that promotion, Cody, the Bucks, and, and then being able to sell out that arena of 10,000 people in Chicago? Well, I'm, and I've talked extensively about it uh, this week on my, on the experience, um, <sighs> You know, it, it, even personal feelings aside uh, about some of the people on the show, because it's no secret that the Kenny Omega and, you know, and the Bucks are nice kids. I've worked with them before, but they've just gone so far into bullshit, just bullshit wrestling, just whether it's, you know, wrestling competitively with grade schoolers or invisible, you know, men or blow up dolls or, uh, you know, little girls, whatever the case may be, this whole phase or fad, we, it took us 15 years to get over that hardcore shit that ECW foisted on us. And then everything was hardcore. And, and it, you know, that was the hot thing of the moment. And it did a lot of damage to the business and the boys in it. And it took us finally 15 years and we got over it. And now people are all oh, that hardcore shit again, but now they're doing phony bullshit entertainment wrestling with invisible men and, and hand grenades and shit. And that's going to be worse for the business in the long run. And, of course, now everybody's saying, Cornette's saying, oh, they just sold 10,000 tickets, and, and he's saying it's horrible for the business. That's what it's come to. I, I, I'm glad that Cody, Cody got genes from the dream. The dream was the big idea guy. The dream was the big concept guy, Starcade, the great American bash. So I'm not surprised that Dusty, that, that, Dusty, that Cody saw this and kind of had a dustiest reaction to it. And those guys are hot and they have a devoted audience. And I've said it a million times for people who like that kind of thing. That's the kind of thing those people like. Um, it, it's, it's become now a situation where th that people, it was a hold my beer moment where the people are disgruntled with the WWF domination of the business. 
Uh, they are fiercely loyal to the Bucks and the Omegas and the Bullet Club guys. Uh, it was the ultimate, and this is not a knock, because it was amazing that they were able to see this and capitalize on it and do something that nobody else in the business has ever done before, ever. And that doesn't happen too often. For guys to finance their own show, run their own show, and do a, a ticket sale like that instantly, it was the ultimate crowd crowdfunding moment in wrestling. I guarantee you that those people lined up to buy the tickets, even if they can't be there because they wanted to be part of history and they wanted to help those guys cross the finish line. And that's a tremendous tribute to how over they are with their audience, whether I agree with the kind of wrestling they do or not. And I don't, that's why I don't do more wrestling shows these days. Cause I can't bring myself to it. I mentioned on the show, if it became a thing to start sodomizing the family pet, I still probably wouldn't be buggering my Pomeranian, but you know, I can't, <laughs> I can't be associated with, with wrestling like that, where guys just do portrayals and performances, you know, in the ring with foolishness and stuffed animals because people now know it's all a show. That's, I guess that's, what's gotten so much heat with me on these guys or heat with these guys with me is that the fans, their fans all go, well, it's wrestling. It's supposed to be silly and, and humorous and fun and, and nobody's supposed to take it seriously because it's wrestling. And they believe that because that's the generation that they've grown up with. And they think somehow when people found out, they think the only difference between wrestling of today and wrestling of 30 years ago is that people found out that it was all a work. That, that's far from the only difference. People, they, It's not presented seriously anymore. The guys won't do anything to protect the business. So therefore, I just can't be involved in it because I can't lend my tacit approval to, you know, to guys doing stuff like that. But that audience is powerful as we've seen. And they sold out the tickets. <laughs> they were able to work in conjunction with ring of honor. They were able to, in effect, rent a wrestling office for the infrastructure because it's the guys, the individually, they weren't set up with Ticketmaster. They didn't have, I don't know what all the deal is with ring of honor, but I would imagine they were useful in, in finding insurance for the event and in setting up with Ticketmaster and executing contracts for merchandise sales or obviously TV promotion. They were able to get tremendous social media behind them because they're once again, the exact age group where all of those people are on Twitter and all of them are, are they live on their phones. I don't even have a smartphone, but these people can't, you know, they're on it. So they're wired in. And they just, every, every box they tick, they didn't, I told uh, my audience when, when they first announced they were going to do a 10,000 seat building, not where or when or whatever, just the concept. And I had mentioned, I, I thought Chicago would be the best place, which is advantageous because they've got pro wrestling tees there for publicity and it's in the middle of the country, but it's an airport hub, easy to get to. They've got a holiday weekend, an extra weekend for people to travel the podcast convention that Conrad's doing has, has started to, you know, uh, to take on a life. So it's like a non WrestleMania WrestleMania weekend of festivities for people. But uh, that's, you know, they've been able to do that as the boys and still have all those things fall into place for them. It's never been possible for guys to run their own show at that level like that with all of those, uh, uh, you know, advantages. And they, they, they knocked it out of the park. And, and also the thing is, to be honest, and I mean, tell me if you believe this is true, if you don't agree, if any promotion in the world ran this exact same show with the exact same talent called the exact same thing, but it wasn't the boys themselves running it, would it have done a quarter of this advanced sale? 
Even no. WWE, TNA, yeah. Ring of Honor, New Japan in the United States, any other company, it's because it was the boys. They are supporting the the team is in need and and they they did it and knocked it out of the park. I wish I wish you could have 20 years ago I wish I could have made the wrestling promotion that baby face with Smoky Mountain we'd still be in business. But it wasn't <laughs> possible then. So, you know, anyway, it's 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 going to be a big deal. Now, I was thinking about the Starcast thing that that Conrad has as you know, it's blown up and it's big. It's weird though. One huge omission from it is you. Is there, uh, were you invited? Are you going? Are you doing it? Like, are, are we allowed to, are we allowed to even talk about it? Well, no, I, well, yes, we're allowed to talk about anything except my, my personal bank account number. <laughs> um, no, I, it is. Matter of fact, I mentioned this on my show also. Maybe we ought to just play the tape of my show. <laughs> no, um, uh, I'm not trying to, Conrad called me when he first had the idea. He hadn't really announced the podcast convention yet, but he contacted me and said, hey, would you like to be a part of it? And I told him, it, it is not even being pissy. I told him no, because that's not my audience. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there would be a, a number of people that would that listen to, the, to my show that go to this show or would want to meet me or whatever, but in whole, it's not my audience. And more importantly, for the people who do not like James E. anyway, or are not fond of me, they'd be going, oh, now look at Cornette. He knocks those guys, but when there's a big convention around their show, he's got to jump in on it and get a payoff. I don't need the payoff, therefore, I, I said, no, I don't think I fit. I don't want to be in a big group and a big bunch of podcasts. I'm going independent, don't want to be part of a crowd, want to do my own thing. Um, and, you know, and that that was fine. And But... It, once again, it just goes to show the lack of awareness of a certain individual as to how hated he is when when I politely declined because I said it's not my thing to be around a bunch of fans of the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, and they probably don't want to see me. But they try to ask shit stain, and, <laughs> and, uh, and the, the blow-up is such from the fans and the talent that he's off the thing in 20. But he actually accepted. Why would he think that any of those fans would want to see him at all? Why, why does he think anybody wants to see him at all to begin with, even his immediate family? That's a question. But but that he did not know that he would not be welcome in that, in that environment. You know, at least if I if I took the booking, I'd go in intending to be a heel, but uh, it'd probably be the wrong kind of heat. So anyway. Now, as far as a relationship with Cody, I know obviously you like Big Dust, but any sort of relationship with Cody at all? Actually, since he was you know, minute as a small boy, I've, I've run into Cody just a couple of times because, you know, he was tied up with the WWE for quite some time, but, um, we, uh, I'm going to say we saw him in England, uh, at the shows that what culture I believe ran a year and a half ago and have run into him a couple of times. And, you know, he's a great kid. He looks fantastic. He's always dressed up. He looks like a pro, uh, great kid. I've, uh, the matches I've seen him have, he's, he's talented. Um, you know, the, the, he thankfully uh, cosmetically looks like a better athlete than Dusty, but he inherited Dusty's great athletic genes because Dusty was a hell of a, uh, football player and a baseball player and et cetera. So, uh, I haven't worked with Cody a bunch, but, uh, but I've enjoyed visiting with him when I have. Now in this event, I don't know if you know, but he'll be challenging for the nwa world title i don't know if you saw that or, or, or what your thoughts are on not only him challenging for the nwa world title which is 
pretty damn ironic and Chicago and everything else. I mean, every, all that is very ironic. What do you think about the NWA kind of coming back? Is it kind of passe, kind of weird that Billy Corgan is, is redoing the NWA? Well, it, it, it's not really weird. I, the NWA was at one point passe um, just because the whole concept, the whole idea of the original NWA was a group of promoters that had different territories that would band together to, uh, to squash opposition, to be quite frank, and to trade talent and to respect boundaries and et cetera, et cetera. And they were all kind of on even keels. Of course, you know, Kansas City didn't carry quite as much weight as, as the Carolinas, except Harley was a part owner of Kansas City, so it carried some weight, you know. But you know what I mean? They were... It, it, the modern promotions that were joining the NWA under the old method is just local guys. A lot of them not with television. They were just, they were trying to get the name NWA to make them mean something rather than because they were all strong wrestling promotions, making the name NWA mean something. It was putting the cart before the horse. And now I, you know, I haven't talked to Billy Corgan extensively about what he's doing, but it's obvious he's, he's got the NWA. He's taking a step back. He's trying to create a little interest in the championship. They're doing the, the online videos. I don't believe he's going to have member promoters. I believe the NWA will be an entity of some description. Uh, and I think that's probably the best way to do it. And as far as Cody challenging, it's perfect. Because Cody Rhodes, the son of the American dream, a former NWA champion on the biggest independent show ever done in the history of God, uh, challenges for the NWA championship. It's perfect because it's perfect for Cody. And it's also perfect for the NWA to be high profile with a new and a younger audience in a different incarnation. Uh, and boy, howdy, I hope he wins it. That's all I'll say. Yeah, it could be uh, some some really good press for that if he does win the title. Now, I want to kind of dial it back to Shane Douglas here and mention that your co-host Brian Last and Mike Mills from Book in the Territory did a, a show not too long ago about the night Shane Douglas threw down the NWA championship in 1993 as part of the NWA title tournament. Now, we've covered that on the Triple Threat podcast with Shane, and, and in kind of looking at stuff, I don't think I've ever heard you comment on that. So what was going through Jim Cornette's mind when Shane threw that title down back in 1993? Obviously, you had ties to Dennis Carluzzo, so what was going through your head when he threw that well, title oh, down? Well, well, I was hot because it was bullshit, and everybody knows it was bullshit, but... And I don't blame Shane so much because he was disgruntled because his run in WCW had ended much like most of ours had ended in WCW. We were pissed off. Um, at least we got to have a main event run before they came in and screwed up our careers. But the guys that, like Shane that came in under Turner, they just screwed their careers up first. Um, but Paulie talked him into doing that shit or whatever. I'd never sat down and talked with Shane extensively about it, probably because I didn't want to get mad at Shane. <laughs> uh, so I'm just going to blame Paulie because anytime anything nefarious happened, it was usually Paul behind it. But they should have just not been in fuck involved. Um, Paul should have just not been involved in the NWA and lied to all those people and fucking you know did that shit if he wasn't if he was going to make their belt look bad. It made Dennis Corluzzo look bad, which Paul loved doing. And I'm sure Todd Gordon loved doing because um, Dennis was the NWA representative and the guy that was there at the tournament. But it just it made the belt look bad. It was disrespectful. And all the other promoters that that had agreed to work with him, that was Paul's idea of becoming outlaw and creating, you know, and I'd say it to his face. He was he was a piece of shit for doing that. He should have just 
gone on and done his own belt and left the fucking NWA alone if that's the best he could come up with. But instead, he pulls that shit. That's why I immediately called Dennis and offered all my Smoky Mountain talent, whoever he wanted, to come up to Jersey. And when we redid the tournament to crown a new NWA champion, uh, because I wanted to help however I could get him out of the mess that Heyman put him into. Yeah, and that tournament itself is another one. In the history books, you go back and look at the talent that was on both of the tournaments. And I said 93, I meant 94 um, when I mentioned that. But you look I'll, at the, I'll, let you, I'll let you get by just Let, let me slide. Let me, yeah, let me slide. Let me slide. But uh, August, obviously, for the first one with Shane, and then the other one, I think it was October, uh, correct, if, if I'm wrong here. But still, the two tournaments themselves featuring that kind of talent. And when Shane threw that belt on the ground, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if the NWA belt recovered up until maybe it started to resurface, you know, when Jeff Jarrett and NWA TNA brought it back in the early 2000s. But do you think well, that no, in the- it, it was it was more important? But when Severn, when Dan Severn carried it, it was more important than it was because let's face it, it wasn't particularly that important at the time when when the ECW tournament was done or the ECW flavored tournament was done. Um, because at that point, WCW was in such disarray, and they were the last ones that had used it. And I think that's at, almost at the point where they stopped running house shows completely. So when you know when Dan Severn uh, carried it to the Octagon on the early UFC pay-per-view, and when there was a real legitimate athlete uh, traveling with it, when the different promoters would bring him in and use him, it, at that point it became more important than it was in the 93-94 time period. And then... You know, when, when the, the NWA ended up being mentioned on Raw, it got them a lot more member promoters, but it didn't really get them that many more fans because of obviously the, the way that the whole thing was a rib by Russo to make us all look like idiots. That's why they foisted it, all, it off on us. And I, you know, said yes to the whole thing, trying to be a team player. But it just, you know, it made everybody, the NWA invasion of WWF made everybody in the NWA look like idiots because they obviously rushed through the matches. They presented all the guys as losers that could only beat each other. And it wasn't, it wasn't ever meant to get any of those guys over. It was meant to make me look bad because that's, as Russo has said, that was supposedly what I was, the wrestling I was pulling for. And I was pulling for good wrestling which we didn't get it with the NWA invasion or the shit that he was booking, either one. Uh, but he's concocted this narrative that I was constantly bugging them to bring these guys in and constantly bugging them to do old-fashioned wrestling. I was avoiding, at that point, speaking to them to see if they'd ignore me, so I didn't, I didn't want to be on the TV show. I didn't want to be on the fucking cards. Uh, they would call me with midnight, the new midnight express. Oh God. All right. <laughs> or can you get a hold of the NWA? We'd like to bring their belt in for Jeff or whatever. All right. It just, it was, you know, nobody can tell me that he wasn't doing it that bad on purpose. Cause nobody can do shit that bad unless it's on purpose. Couldn't be accidental. Uh, I personally love seeing uh, Rock and Roll Express and Barry Windham, and I, even then when Severn would come in a few months later, I just love seeing that flavor in the WWF at that point. But I just want to go back to Shane here. Well, imagine if we'd ever done anything interesting. Oh, it would have been unbelievable. But we, <laughs> but now let's take the ECW part of the uh, the NWA title tournament out of it. If Shane was to become the NWA champion at that point in 1994, what do you think Shane could have done for the belt if he just went through with it and was the NWA champion? Um, I think he was the uh, Shane 
of all of the guys in the Northeast was the best guy to hold the NWA title because he was the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to uh, piss somebody off cause I'm not going to remember somebody or whatever. But at that point, at that time in the, of the Northeast guys, Shane was the most, I thought, well-rounded worker. He was at the time he was still young and athletic, but we were all still young and maybe athletic in my case, but he was young. He was, he was a good looking kid. He could cut a pretty good promo. He, he was a good all around worker. I, he would have done well with the traditional NWA uh, title where he would go to the different promotions and wrestle the local guy. And he'd probably be able to pull it off because he could have a match with a different variety of people. So I mean, that would have been great if they'd have, if they'd have done it right. Or just do their, once again, do their own belt. I'm not saying that ECW had to just use the NW, because that would have led to more issues anyway. If Once they got a little bit more television, ECW, and they had the NWA champion, and especially with the stuff they were doing on TV, a lot of the NWA promoters would have not wanted the champion doing shit like that on television. So it's always better they had their own belt, but they just shouldn't have, you know, they just shouldn't have stabbed people in the back to do it. But that's, you know, that's Paul. Now, did you really like Shane Douglas because you loved managing the dynamic dudes at one point? Oh, good Lord. Um, <laughs> I felt so sorry for Shane because it's like, <laughs> it's like a, he had a heat magnet attached to his hip. Shane, even the people, the, the dudes was a horrible gimmick. The fluorescent colors and the skateboards and the backwards baseball caps and everything. It, it was It was rotten. But Shane was a good enough worker, and, and as a babyface, when you'd get heat on him and he'd sell down south, he'd still get to people behind him. But then Laurinaitis would tag in and just clutch the whole fucking thing up, and, and up north, they had no chance. People didn't like either one of them. There was the famous night in Philadelphia where we're, we're getting heat on fucking Johnny Ace for once, right? And Shane's going to make the comeback. But they got Johnny in the ring, and the people start chanting while they're getting heat on him on the babyface, Johnny sucks dick. Johnny sucks dick. <laughs> and we look up and hanging from the bleachers is a big bed sheet. And they've spray painted on it with black spray paint. Johnny sucks Shane's dick. That's where the people picked up on it. Started chanting that. <laughs> and so, you know, Shane was in there all by himself. Um, anyway, so yeah, that was not the greatest gimmick in the world. Now, obviously, the Midnight Express, I mean, they could really carry anybody and just work a really good match with anybody was that one of those things where it's like okay like we're gonna try to push these guys to make them look good or is it one of those things where it kind of falls on the midnight express is like okay we're gonna throw you in there with anybody you better have a good match with these guys well no you know they i think jr wanted to push the dudes but heard heard hated us and didn't want anything didn't want to hear any ideas involving the midnight express and that's why we ended up working with the dynamic dudes because I had pitched us doing an angle with the Steiners because we had great matches with Steiners. And I pitched some somebody else and it blah, blah, blah. Basically, the Dynamic Dudes were the only other team that Heard didn't give a shit what happened to. So that's how he's okay. <laughs> if you're going to take both the Midnight Express and the Dynamic Dudes, fine. Let them work together. That way I don't have to listen to this shit. And that's how we you know, ended up working with the Dynamic Dudes. Now, Jim Heard, obviously, as a guy, you don't, really like too much he ended up quitting because of him what was their relationship like with you and him or was it just totally non-existent no it, it was it existed we hated each other 
um, he was constantly grumping at me and I was constantly wanting to gouge his eyeballs out. So that was our relationship. <laughs> what was it with him? Like the story, basically, obviously you, you would know besides some rumors and people putting stuff together, but what was the reason behind really putting him in charge of Turner? Was it just an aptitude on their part? Like, why did they think him of all people a guy from, from Pizza Hut would be what, able to control WCW? What I had always been told and have, have in 30 years have not heard another version of the story was that Jack Petrick, who was the Turner Broadcasting executive that was put in charge of the division that the wrestling company would fall under, his wife was friends with Hurd's wife and Hurd from St. Louis, and this was 1988 now, mind you, in the mid-late 60s, had been a studio director for KPLR TV Channel 11 in St. Louis and had directed the wrestling show for Sam Muchnick. So somehow, <laughs> and that was back in the days when they didn't even smarten the, the technical crew up to wrestling was a work, and it was the most basic of, of you know TV wrestling shows. And somehow, because of that wrestling background the guy who had currently been a pizza hut executive was suddenly put in charge of the second largest wrestling company in in north america to spectacular results and i'm not even kidding unbelievable that you know the inner politics and the inner workings of sometimes the wrestling business is just almost crazier than well the actually no when you think of this this wasn't this wasn't the inner workings and politics of the wrestling business this was the inner workings politics and incompetence of turner broadcasting the the company that we thought <laughs> well oh my god we we've, we've got great wrestlers we've got great wrestling tv we have all is we've got all these fans all across the country if we just had the bottomless pockets to fight vince now that turner broadcasting has bought us we got everything and they just within a year and a half, they dismantled the whole fucking ball of wax. It was that, it was amazing. That is a great point. I mean, obviously Turner Broadcasting kind of shit the bed a bit, and obviously they weren't doing their part to help WCW when you had all that amazing talent. I mean, that roster was was unbelievable. And when you get a guy like Jim Cornette and a guy like Stan Lane to get up and quit and walk out, that's pretty much saying a lot right there. It's almost saying like. How are we losing these guys? Well, it's your fault. You know, whoever well, now, started really ruining we, it. We, we weren't the only ones. He he ran uh, the Road Warriors and Paul Ellering off. Uh, then he, he ran he ran us off twice. We'd quit once, and, and cu- they talked us into coming back. We ran us off twice. Flair quit as Booker, and then later on quit completely and went to the WWF because of Jim mm-hmm. Hurt. Uh, I mean, you know, there's other people in there, but... Uh, uh, he had quite a quite a run there of of running off uh, some of the biggest name talent in the business. Crazy, all the guys that would leave and then end up with with Vince uh, at one point. But starting Smoky Mountain, I know we talked about this before, you know, briefly. But starting Smoky Mountain was that something always on your mind, always that you wanted to start your own promotion? Did that you know that that big territory? create that thing was that always in your mind the back of your head as you're doing all this other thing you know announcing commentating oh god no no um actually what technically was in my mind up until crockett sold to turner broadcasting was one day i will book mid-atlantic wrestling i will book crockett promotions you know after dusty is retired and living on living on the beats baby somewhere down there um (laughs) You know, I've, I've, yes, I will do this one day. And then, of course, that became impossible. But then I thought, well, then when Flair actually got me on the booking committee in WCW for that period of time, 
uh, I thought, okay, this, cause that I always wanted to do that because the money to be made in wrestling all those years was in booking. And that's how ass backwards it is now in the old days, the promoter and the booker made the majority of the money. That's what you wanted to aspire to. If you were one of the boys and you were smart, you wanted to be figured in as the booker in a major territory, or you wanted to be a part owner of something. And that was the way to regular steady and good money. And uh, you could make a lot. Now the, the promoters and, and the bookers are the last ones to make any money. They pay the wrestlers a fortune in, in, in some cases. Anyway, uh, once that Turner Broadcasting uh, took over and I had that stint on the booking committee and then, you know, Heard was there, then Flair was gone and we were gone, et cetera. I was, I was riding in the car with the Midnight Express and, you know, usually Stan or Bobby would drive to the town and I might drive back or whatever. That way they could drink after the matches. So during the day, I'd read the road atlas in the back seat for something to do. And I started looking at, you know, old territories. And I started looking at places that could be territories. And I started looking, and I, we had gone to Knoxville for WCW. And I'd seen they were still drawing there. When they couldn't draw a house anywhere else, they were still drawing in Knoxville until they screwed that up with all the no-shows. But it gave me the idea, and I started looking at the atlas. And then I said, well... Maybe this could work. And then a friend of mine introduced me to Rick Rubin when he came to Atlanta to work on a record deal with the Black Crows. And uh, he was big fans of mine and, and Flair. And uh, we started talking and he's, I said, would you ever be interested in backing a wrestling promotion? He said, yes, I would. And that's when I had the idea for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I had to make my own territory because there were none left available. Uh, so that's kind of how that came up. Because at, at that point, I would have I would have pretty much I would have almost quit wrestling. I I wouldn't have been able to afford to go back and work Memphis. And that was the last territory left. So I would have pretty much had to quit wrestling if I hadn't uh, started Smoky Mountain. It is crazy that Rick Rubin, of all people, is associated with Jim Cornette as far as starting Smoky Mountain. You ever look back and it's like, wow, that's a you know, an odd pairing you wouldn't really necessarily think about on paper. Oh yeah. It was always hilarious to us, you know, and, and it, just the idea, but at the same time, Rick was a, a Yankee from New York that had moved to Hollywood and made a bunch of money, but he, he loved old time Southern wrestling, especially because that was the stuff that was more believable. If you, th if you look at it, Rick, uh, when he produced artists, it was a uh, Johnny cash stripped away the, the uh, the phony Hollywood veneer that had been surrounded him and went back to the artist and the and the guy the root of Johnny Cash the man in black he would always he he produce guys by unproducing them by letting their talent show through and letting the realism and the grit and he he said told me one time he said if you're not offending somebody you're not doing it right um so you know the the idea of this classic American performance art that was being lost appealed to him to, to, you know, keep it, uh, he didn't, he didn't want, you know, the, the clownishness of nineties WWF with face paint and, you know, fucking Matilda, the bulldog. He wanted the real shit. Very cool. If you think about Smoky mountain, even watching it now, I, I still enjoy it because it's the last territory. Really. If you really think about it, so many good guys in and out of there, so many talent, so many talent, excuse me, was developed in Smoky Mountain. So many guys, you know, the Canes of the world, the Al Snows of the world, D'Lo Brown. I mean, so many different guys. Did you look at it when you first started it as a feeder territory for the WWF? Or were you 
thinking more, you know, in-house, this is my territory, these are my guys, I'm going to build it for us. Oh, well, well yes. Well, see, at first, we weren't affiliated with anybody. Uh, so, yes, it was all, I was about, this is, this is, and I was always about, this is our territory, I'm going to build this for us. But uh, at first, there was the deal with WCW real briefly, when, when Bill Watts came back to run things, was trying to right the ship until, you know, at, <laughs> That bunch of pussy fucking wrestlers that they had at that point, if they'd had to work for Bill Watts at Mid-South Wrestling when he was the real boss instead of just the hired boss that didn't have all the pull, uh, if they think WCW was, they were all crying and cringing, he could have, he brought the losses from like $8 million the previous year to like $400,000, which is what he was brought in to do, but he didn't have time to really make any inroads, but we were going to have, that's why the Midnight and, or the Midnight, the Heavenly Bodies and the Rock and Roll and I were on Super Brawl that year and why Bob Eaton and Arn Anderson were in uh, Smoky Mountain. We were going to start a talent trade and, and working on some different things. And he didn't stay long enough for us to do that. And then later on that year, we got the call from the WWF. And I didn't look at it as a feeder system per se. I knew that we were going to be feeding talent to the WWF, which was fine because why not? That's a carrot to dangle in front of guys. If you come to work in Smoky Mountain Wrestling and you impress everybody and you look good, the people in the WWF are seeing the TV and, and the booker is, is working on all their TVs and pay-per-views. So you think that'll be a handy thing? Yeah, probably. So that was it made it easier for us to get talent maybe that we wanted or for people to pay attention to us. And then we got national name talent to come in and work with our guys and, and work with them competitively and on their level. So it made our guys look like bigger names. And if you think about it, when you get the guys like the undertaker down there, you know, and they're giving you talent as well, it did nothing but benefit Smoky Mountain. So pretty amazing when you get a guy right like undertaker and they kind of, you know, loan them to you or, you know, like they give them to you for, for a couple bookings. Yeah, and, and the great thing was at the time, Mark lived in Nashville. So it was like three hours over in the car. P poor P Percy, Paul Bear had to fly from Mobile for, to make the Knoxville show. But, but uh, Tecker, <laughs> and he was friends with Brian Lee at the time. And Brian lived in Nashville. So sometimes, one time in Glasgow, Kentucky, Brian Lee comes in and the Undertaker was off that week and just rode to the show with him at the high school gym in Glasgow, Kentucky. There's 350, 400 people there. And in walks Brian Lee with the undertaker, but the undertaker goes to the locker room, stays there the rest of the night. Nobody ever sees him again. <laughs> Biggest star <laughs> in wrestling's in the building. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so, but anyway, and, and Mark kind of started in the Memphis territory after he broke in in Dallas and, and, you know, and he knew the wrestling business and, and he was happy to come and work with, I didn't just have him come and, put him against, you know, Joe and Bob in a handicap match, just so people could see the undertaker. When he came in, it was to work with, uh, in, in one case, Glenn Jacobs, that's Unibom, who would later become Kane. I said, okay, here's, here's you an opponent. If you have a good match with him and you think you might want to work with him on pay-per-view, put a word in for Vince and guess what happened six months later. <laughs> um, you know, so Mark was coming in to help the territory and to scout opponents for himself and, and you know, and, and do good business. Yeah, the rest, they say, is history, obviously, with uh, Unibom, a.k.a. Isaac Yankum, a.k.a. Fake Diesel, a.k.a. Kane, the most decorated uh, wrestler possibly in the history of WWE. My God, how long he's been there. But, you know, just kind of touching with the Smoky Mountain to WWF connection. Obviously, besides you and the Heavenly Bodies, would Brian Lee be the first guy that was really plucked from Smoky Mountain to be that you know, phony Undertaker role in the SummerSlam yeah. in that 94 year? 
Well, it, it, with an asterisk, because the reason, it, once again, he was friends with Taker is the reason why, because they came up with the idea, because Mar- Brian was almost the same size, had the long hair, was could close enough, could pull it off, right? And and then Brian did a few things that did not endear him to either management or the Undertaker, and <laughs> so that it was not followed through on after that initial big splash. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you this. One time I'm, I'm doing voiceovers on a Raw. Uh, I was co-hosting Raw for some reason while, I don't know if it was one of the times Lawler was out or whatever, but we're doing them at the studio. It wasn't a live show. And and Vince says, uh, I need to speak to you, pal. We go, you know, uh, back in the corner away from the audio booth, and he says, I just wanted you to know that, because they had given Brian some dates around that fake Undertaker thing. And... Uh, and he had come to Vince and he'd said, well, I just want you to know, I can, I can start full time anytime. And he said, well, aren't you working for Cornette down there in Knoxville? Yeah, but it doesn't matter. So basically he came to me and told me, Hey, Brian Lee just told me he he was leave with no notice and finish up <laughs> on you anytime, uh, to, to come work for me. And I just wanted you to know, because if he'll do it to you to make more money for work for me, then if somebody else offers him more money, he'll do it to me which is what the guys never figured out. When you tell a promoter something like that, the first thing they're going to do is, well, they'll fuck me too. So Vince told me about that. Vince decided not to use him. I kind of switched him baby face again, finished him up and, and there he was, he was floating around. Wow. That's something you, wow. You never think about that. That's almost like, you know, um, that's like the guy, that's like uh, the Wally Pip moment with Lou Gehrig. You know, you miss that opportunity uh, you know, because it's something that, yeah, the promoter saw that, and that's unbelievable. But some of those guys, I mean, we've talked about it with you before. It's just the, the list of names is unbelievable. But, you know, even on a, on a smaller scale, the fact that, you know, Sonny was obviously able to, to move up from Hooking Mountain to WWF TV. But we, we always talk about him. But Chris Candido, I mean, what an underrated guy in the, the history of the business. It was such a great in-ring wrestler and had such a great personality. Obviously passed away way too soon, but... You know, he had such a great run in Smoky Mountain and moving to, you know, skip of the body down is obviously not what you would consider to be the greatest gimmick in the world. But did yeah. he did he talk to you about skip and now not really loving that gimmick when he got to the WWF in 95? Oh, God, yes. I mean, you know, you can see it on his face. He looked he looked like somebody has held a steaming turd under his nose. Uh, and it was horrible. It was a horrible gimmick. And it was and then they buried Tom Pritchard when they made him, you know, his partner. It was just. It was stupid is what it was, but that was during the 90s. Everybody had to have a profession. There was a garbage man and a hockey player, and here's the, the fitness you know, experts, the body donnas. Uh, Chris was a tremendous talent and, and way beyond his, his age. Uh, and he not only could work athletically, but once he got in Knoxville and he started traveling with all those veterans, being around Tom Pritchard and Stan Lane and Jimmy Del Rey and, and uh, Dirty White Boy and Tracy Smothers and Bob Armstrong and all those guys. Then he started learning psychology and he picked that up so quick. And, you know, he could nail finishes and he could cut promos. He could do just everything. And they just, you know, they brought him up and they said, oh, here's this short little guy. He reminds me of that Tony Little. Let's make him a fitness guy because they didn't take him seriously. And then Sonny pulled out of the pack because they weren't used to that many gorgeous, hot, young girls at that point. And, you know, and that once that she got over, then they just left Chris to float. 
but he was the star of the family and the star of the show, uh, as far as if you were running a wrestling promotion, but since it was a, you know, basically sideshow circus character moment, uh, he, it just, it, it buried him and, and he was miserable. And, and I mean, they knew he was miserable too. It's not like he hid it. And I've, I used to tell him, hey, at least you're here. Maybe something will happen. But I couldn't come up with that much rosiness to, to paint it, you know, uh, in a better light for him. He knew it sucked. It sucked. It was horrible. It was obvious. Now, rebook it. If Chris Candido could go in as Chris Candido in 1995, where do you think he would have fell into the pack with the rest of that roster? Well, the rest of that roster at that time, once again, it, you know... <laughs> Everybody was fucking huge. Everybody was huge, whether they could carry it or not, whether they could work or not. Everybody was huge, and he was a little guy. I would have, you know, I. Everybody knows what I would have had a roster more like Smoky Mountain Wrestling rather than than, uh, to be honest, than a bunch of huge six foot six guys that were three hundred pounds and everybody doing the same shit. I'd had guys that could work and guys that can bump and tried to give them some more action. Uh, which is what they ended up doing later on, but it just, it was a horrible time in 95, 96. When Smoky Mountain ends up closing the door and end up, you know, closing down Smoky Mountain for good, is that one of those things where, you know, you're bitter, upset about it? Or is one of the things where, like, oh, thank God this is over. Now I can focus on, you know, the WBF or whatever else you have. Oh, you good know, Lord. No. This, and, you know, sometimes people don't even believe me when I say this. The only reason I had taken the job with the WWF was to make extra money to put back in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. <laughs> and, and truthfully and honestly, I'd said if, if Smoky Mountain doesn't make it, then fuck it. I'm done with wrestling. But unfortunately, I had to take the job with the WWF because I had shit to pay off from Smoky Mountain so I could get the tapes back and everything from the, from the production company. Um, no, I'm the only person that's ever reluctantly gone to work in the office in Stamford. Well, I don't know about the only person reluctantly, but I didn't want, I, I, I asked Vince, I didn't ask Vince. I basically pitched Vince toward, uh, Thanksgiving of 95, you know, with our international sales that we were hoping for the international TV sales of tapes hadn't come through to give us some extra money and Thanksgiving houses were down and are looking like they were going to be down and, I, so I went to Vince and I said, you know, hey, almost wink, wink. Boy, if I can't come up with a way to get an extra, you know, five or ten grand a week, maybe, or not not even that, five or ten grand a month, I think it was. I said, uh, I may have to close down by Christmas. And I was thinking he was going to say, well, I've gotten all this talent. I've gotten Candido and Tammy and Al Snow and Glenn Jacobs and this and that. Maybe, you know, maybe you'll, you know, kick in a little bit. But what he said was, he said... Well, if you do, let me know, because I'd love to have you come up and work on the creative team full-time. I'm like, Newman! God damn it! <laughs> you know, that's not what I said. So now, I, I when I, I was going to have to close down, but I had a job offer, so I had to go because I had to pay all these things off. So I reluctantly, gritting my teeth and clenching my ass, moved to Connecticut to work. In the, and it just wasn't a fit. I just couldn't stand it there. It just, it after... After the disappointment of Smoky Mountain Wrestling, I, you know, I, I won't say I didn't do my best work in the WWF. I always tried hard to do whatever. I tried too hard to do whatever I was supposed to do. That's part of the problem. But it just, I never wanted to be there. I didn't like the style of wrestling. I didn't want to be involved in sports entertainment. I liked the idea of being able to, to get guys over and get them jobs. But, you know, I never wanted to do it. And that's why pretty much as soon as I got there, I started looking for an escape route. 
And then when I ran into Danny Davis here in Louisville, when I was visiting about a year and a half later and saw his school and saw that their developmental program needed a major, well, they didn't have a developmental program at the time. They, Tom Pritchard and Dory Funk Jr. were training guys in the warehouse at the TV studio. I said, all right, this, this could probably be done better. And that's how I was able to get out and go to Louisville, the happiest day of my life. I pitched to, to Jim Ross. I said, they can pay me half what they're paying me now. I will move to Louisville and run this thing and book it. Let me get the fuck out of here. Pitch this to Vince. And, and he came through with it. Crazy, because a lot of people obviously would die to work for Vince. Or, you know, they, they would love working. I'm not even saying I'm not even saying I was hating working for Vince. I was hating living in Connecticut, working for Vince 24 hours a day, because that will get old real fucking quick. Vince was very nice to me at that period of time, so I'm not knocking him. But I never went to live in that fucking overpriced hellhole, as Jim Ross said in that promo, because he was the same way. Everybody that came from down south, it's like what the fuck, the traffic, the fucking prices, the goddamn—it's hard to do anything. People are like, Ricky Morton went to New York. First time we were working for Crockett, he went to New York and he came in the next day in the locker room. He said, fuck. He said, I need to get back home. I said, what do you mean? He's, he went into a convenience store and there was an old woman walking up behind him. So he pushed the door open and stopped and stepped back to let her go through. And she looked at him like he was going to hit her over the fucking head. <laughs> you know, they're not used to people being nice. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't home. I love my fans in Connecticut, but it wasn't home. And JR felt the same way. Jerry Jarrett, when he came up to, you know, when Vince was going to go to jail, he was going to run the thing. And he said he was up to drinking two bottles of wine a night in the apartment they got him till he could get back to Nashville. Uh, you know, it just, everybody has always had that reaction. So, yeah, it would have been a lot of the thing that a lot of people want to do. But I, I wanted territory wrestling has always been my thing. I didn't want to travel all over the goddamn world. I, I wanted, I wanted to, to, territory wrestling was my thing. And, and the last place I wanted to be was in Connecticut on that fucking parkway an hour and a half a day, going back and forth to an office that I, I, I actually worked in the office. I went to an office every day for like a year and a half and it was fucking brutal because <laughs> you, you can't get any work done working in a wrestling office. The real, I'd go home, I'd take all my work and do it at home because the real way, calling promoters and calling talent and fucking sitting with goddamn stacks of paper surrounding you, working on fucking ideas for TV and TV formats and shit. You don't do that shit in an office. You only work in an office when you're in a real company, Pinocchio, and that, that, that <laughs> doesn't mix with wrestling. <laughs> now, the actual tape library of Smoky Mountain, did you actually you sold it all to Vince at WWF? You see it on the WWE network now. I did. They, they have it all and they've been very slow, let's say, to roll it out. I think it's 14 years ago I sold it to them. Um, well, and I finally made a profit on Smoky Mountain Wrestling after all those years by doing that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I wish they would because, you know, there's so much good stuff there. But now people are just saying, fuck it. They've, I mean, we sold videotapes of the show when it was in production on subscription to the fans around the country that couldn't get it you know, via over the air signal because they didn't live in the territory. So it's all out there and people are putting stuff up on YouTube and it gets tons of views and, and, you know, they like it. And now people are calling it, you know, as the, the last of the territories and, and are having a, they're rediscovering it for the first time, if that makes any sense, because now when you look back on it with 
eyes from 2018, it's like, my God, this shit's great. At the time, it was real good wrestling, but it wasn't anything outstanding. But now the you know level of wrestling has gone down so far that people now look and go. And I'm not talking about the level of athleticism, by the way, or people say, wow, that was the greatest match ever with Kenny Omega and the blow-up doll, and the, the athleticism <laughs> is better than ever. The guys are doing a lot more shit. The wrestling sucks. Uh, because my my criteria for wrestling is 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 not how much you can do but whether or not what you do gets over and whether the audience that is watching it is into it and you know you know as well as i do that now everybody looks at wrestling with jaded eyes they politely applaud for a move that might paralyze somebody, whereas, you know, the right guy snatching a headlock, they used to come out of their chairs and throw the babies in the air. It's because they were they 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 were are they're looking now at a performance rather than cheering for their guy to win a fight. And it's a whole different outlook. That's very true. That classic Bobby Eaton punch you get more over than somebody doing like a package pal driver through a table. Yeah, because it looked like it really, A, really hurt you, and B, uh, you were into what the guys were doing as far as following it as a contest instead of seeing what move they were going to do next. And it, that's what today's modern fans have missed out on because they're, they're too young to have experienced that emotion in the arenas. They're too young to have experienced the atmosphere and to know what the stuff you know felt like. So now they just go and they think, oh, this is something to do for fun and a giggle. And look, oh, they're doing interesting moves. You know, <laughs> nobody, nobody's going nobody's to start a riot in, in, unless maybe they book Vince Russo on another card. Then, then the people <laughs> start carrying pitchforks. Now, as we start to wind it down here, with you, it's like impossible because when I put together like you know, run sheet or something. It's there's almost too much information on it. It's just because you've done so much in the business, you've literally worked everywhere. I'm just curious with Midnight Express, just a couple, you know, little things with them. Obviously, one of my greatest tag teams of all time, if not the greatest tag team. I love Condry and Eaton, but my favorite is Eaton and Lane. Obviously, I'm not going to ask you your favorite because it's going to be impossible. But as far as teams that you worked, is there some teams that's, that stick out more than others? I mean, obviously, Rock and Roll Express is probably going to be number one. But is there some teams that were, you know, your favorites to work more so than others? Oh, God. Well, it, definitely along with the Rock and Roll, the Fantastics. Oh, we just fit with Bobby and Tommy so good because and, – and especially Tommy Rogers was so underrated as an athlete. He was so athletic and his work was so crisp and so perfect and light and – and then Bobby Fulton, I've told him a million times, he's a classic overachiever because he really athletically shouldn't have been working at the level that he was, but he just worked so hard and he loved the wrestling business that he overachieved. Um, and the, so the Fantastics were great to work with. And we had we had great matches with the Road Warriors. And a lot of people, you know, have the impression of the Road Warriors from the 80s as this team that didn't sell anything and steamrolled people if you go back and watch the midnight express matches they sell more for the midnight express whether it's eaton and condry or eaton and lane than almost any other team uh and they both would go down and they both would would sell and and because uh because we did it right we always cheated or we always two on one or used the racket from behind or whatever and didn't make them look bad like they were just getting beat up and then we always flew for them on the comeback and the 
the formula uh, that people tried with the Road Warriors was once they got over so good, they kept trying to find teams that were as big as bad, you know, like the Clash of the Giants, like the Road or the Russians, or then later on the Powers of Pain. But if you notice, the Road Warriors worked best, drew best, against a little heel team that had so much heat that people wanted to see them get killed. Tully and Arn and the Midnight Express. Throw them off scaffold. They legitimately wanted, the fans wanted to see us die. Um, you know, beat up the horsemen. If, if, you know, fucking hit JJ with the thing, whatever. The, the smaller teams with heat worked uh, against the Road Warriors more than, than the, the big teams that could match up to them physically. Um, and, you know, and, and there was... There were so many great teams. I mean, we but we enjoyed working with the Mulkey brothers, for God's sake. People still remember that. But uh, the Garvin brothers, or or Ronnie Garvin and Barry Wyndham was another un- underrated team. That Barry Wyndham at the time was the smoothest guy in the ring in the business. And he and Bobby would have incredible matches just on spot shows. They would do shit like having a match on their knees just to give themselves a handicap and they were still smoother than everybody else. But literally they'd, Barry Wyndham would get a headlock and they'd go down to their knees and then Bobby would shove him off into the rope and he'd give Bobby a tackle while they were still on their knees. And then they'd drop kick and hip toss and everything. It was insane, but it, they were so good and the people didn't know any difference. They didn't know what they were doing. It, so, you know, there were a lot of great teams that we worked with and everybody I think tried to, up their game when they were in with the midnight because they knew they were going to look like a million dollars if they did. I love that you mentioned the Mulkies there because I was almost thinking about them as like a forgotten great, you know, enhancement, jobber team, whatever you want to call it. Always had good matches with Midnights. It's interesting. I think it's impossible to not have a good match with those guys, right? More so than anything. It's, it's almost like you can't not have a good match with the Midnight Express. Well, yeah, and, and part of it is because uh, all all those guys, they were great tag team wrestlers. Dennis had been in a long-term team with Phil Hickerson. Bobby had been in a number of teams, Coco Ware and and George Goulas. So he learned how to carry the majority of the match. Uh, Dennis Condry was in, you know, was insane with with his ring generalship and, and body language. Stan Lane had been a member of the Fabulous Ones uh, and worked at a high level. And, you know, so it, the point is, uh, they didn't go out to just have their match. They figured out what can we do to make this guy look good, even if some cases, if he wasn't that good. And once the people are behind him, then we can do our shit and the people will be with it. But if if the people didn't like your opponent or weren't behind your opponent, then you couldn't take him anywhere. Now, obviously, uh, we've talked about this before, but you – Gave me a great keepsake in that Midnight Express book. It's one of my prized possessions, that uh, 25th anniversary scrapbook. An awesome book. I know they're out of print. I know they're impossible to get. But I am just wanted to just say, not to promote it, to say, you know, I have it. But such an awesome thing. I know it's basically impossible. You can't get it anymore. But I remember you telling me that you had a certain amount of them. You put them up. You sold them out. And then you, you sold more than you ever thought you would. So you almost had to pull it because they were selling faster than, than you actually. Yeah. Had. Well, well, no, what, what happened was <clears throat> we had found a box in the closet. Right. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to save these for a special occasion. And I saw the boys. So I had the boys sign them at, at WrestleCade last year, Bobby Eaton and, and Stan Lane both signed them. And I announced on my show, I'm going to put them up on my website Monday morning at such and such a time Eastern. They'll be available. We've only got like 17 of them. 
so you know, uh, jump in early. Well, and I put the 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 uh, inventory number in my website, but we found out that if everybody logs on at the same time and tries to buy something, it just buffaloes the the inventory feature. And my wife and I put it up, and then like one minute later, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, it goes Bing, 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 and I'm like, Hey, they're gonna all sell out, and then they keep going Bing, Bing. I'm like, Stop it, stop it, and we oversold. We like sold like 27 of them. I had to refund some money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it goes to show people are interested. Um, you know, the same thing I hope will happen with behind the curtain. We're gonna make a collector's item out of that thing. I've got another, uh, actually, a book contract with another publisher. For something in 2019, I think we're going to do a, a cool thing with. We're we're working on a new video project. Um, just you know, things that I can do for for the people who like that kind of thing. These are the kind of things that those people are going to like, and that's what keeps me busy. And that's what you've always got something going, and that's what we love about you that we can get you on and talk about whatever's going on in the world of Jim Cornette. But before we let you go, before we get to the last plug here for the graphic novel. I got to give you my Barbara Walters inside the actor studio question. And that is at the end of the day, what's the biggest misconception of James E. Cornett? Oh gosh. It, that's uh, I need to, I need to sharpen my pencil. Uh, people, uh, there's a misconception that I'm crazy, except in some cases I am because pretty much if you're in the wrestling business, you're crazy. Either you get in the wrestling business cause you're crazy or you get in the wrestling business and the crazy people in it make you crazy. Um, there's the misconception that I'm always mad and angry about something just because I'm, I'm a passionate person. And when I say good things about people, nobody ever reports it or ever talks about it. Or actually, they usually they ignore it and they just say, oh, he was always knocking that guy anyway. Um, so I, I'm, I'm passionate, good and bad. When I really like something, I rave about it for a week and a half, right? It's just that nobody, like I said, likes to report on the good stuff. So they think I'm always mad. I'm not. I do uh, when I do get mad. I tend to play with my puppy, little Harley Quinn. She gives me puppy kisses on my cheek, and I rub her belly, and she's my little furry Xanax. It makes me feel better. But uh, uh, I would say there's the misconception that I hate wrestling. I don't hate wrestling. I've loved wrestling all my life. I just hate the shit that passes for wrestling these days. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of I've, I've been misconceived in a lot of ways. And I think possibly what I'm going to have to do is, is just start a program where I take people in, maybe 10 or 12 of them at a time, and let them live with me for a week or two and, and, and fall in love with me as I really am and see the real Jim Cornette behind the veneer of the, the showbiz front. Maybe that's what I'll do. Or maybe not. And if they don't believe in that, then you could just hit them with a tennis racket on the way out and give them a good uh, stiff kick in the ass. Exactly. As and, the you know, and you know what they say? It's only a couple of feet difference between a pat on the back and a kick in the pants, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, as we wrap it up here, Jim, if we can, please give one more pitch here for the graphic novel. Obviously, over 1,000 people backed it in 24 hours. It, it, the, the Kickstarter was funded. But please, share with the fans, listeners of the Two Man Power Trip, everything going on in the world of Jim Cornette and where we can find all the information about that graphic novel, Jim Cornette's Real Pro Wrestling Stories. Oh my gosh, go to tinyurl.com slash corny kickstarter. You've still got time, less than 24 hours, but you still got time for Behind the Curtain. Uh, listen to the Jim Cornette Experience every Thursday and Jim Cornette's drive through every Monday, wherever you get your favorite podcast. Go to jimcornette.com for the very few select live appearances that I'll be making this year because I just don't have time, as well as 
uh, Cornets Collectibles and all the merchandise where you can get everything from action figures, books, DVDs, restraining orders, T-shirts, and so much more. Uh, and and uh, and don't forget, uh, uh, whatever you do, uh, always remember and never forget, Jim Cornette is the leader of the cult of Cornette, and I couldn't do it without the cult. So pat yourselves on the back for listening to me drone on for the past hours. <laughs> Absolutely. We always love having you on, and obviously... If John can bamboozle you in about six months and we'll get you back for number five, obviously, then uh, our job is done as, uh, as interviewers. But we always thank you so much. We always have a lot of fun, and uh, the door is always open for you to come back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And don't let the door hit me in the ass on the way out, right? Well, <laughs> in that case, thank you. Fuck you. Bye. Heenan, from behind, there's Bundy. Where did he come from? Wham! King Kong Bundy to the rescue. He looks like the Calvary McMahon. Bundy, out of the blue. We saw him earlier. And look, oh no, double team coming up. Look, Morocco holding onto the Hulkster's arms. Morocco's got the champion held against the... I love it. I love it, the avalanche. Heenan giving instructions in there. And here comes, oh no, a referee through the ropes. Right at the Hulkster, another avalanche. This is brutal, brutal, McMahon. Look at Bundy, he's just measuring him off. He's measuring Hogan off. Morocco holding onto the arms. The Hulkster has limp, but Morocco holds him up. But now, the Hulkster down on the canvas. And he is hurt. What'd he say? He said, there's your champion, McMahon. With yet another avalanche. And Heenan giving instruction on... Uh, Morocco to turn him over. Oh, no. This is... I've never seen anything quite like this before. Champion Hulk Hogan, totally unconscious. A number of wrestlers coming in now to, to help the Hulkster, but it looks like it's definitely too late. He's not even moving, Justin. He's definitely unconscious, McMahon. He's definitely injured. I think there's a doctor in the ring also. They're trying to bring a hoaxer back around. Yes, the doctor is definitely in there now to take a, a good look at him. No man could withstand that kind of punishment we saw from, from Bundy. Well, you have to remember, Bundy weighs somewhere around the 500-pound mark. Morocco is helping push down, so is Heenan. I bet his ribs are crushed. I mean, there's no telling what's wrong with him. You, you know he has to have internal injuries as a result of that kind of damage. Medical assistance should be on its way. And uh, when we return, we'll, we'll have an update on the Hulkster's condition. All right. Well, joining us on the line here tonight is a man promoting an appearance coming up at the beautiful subway in Keensburg, New Jersey. He is the human condominium, the man who battled Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania 2 and the master of the five count. He is the one and only, the icon, the legendary King Kong Bundy. Mr. Bundy, thank you so much for joining yeah, the two-man power all, trip. Get your, get your facts straight, son. It's the walking condominium, not the human condominium. What <laughs> the hell is a human condominium? <laughs> It'd be like part man, part condo. <laughs> I never heard that. That was good. <laughs> yes, you know, I've always heard about the Kingsburg subway, how great the sandwiches are, better than any other subway. I just wanted to find out for myself. 
So I called John Palzerowski and he said, come on up. So I will be there this Saturday from, I think I'm going to get there around 12, maybe stay till three or so. I figure I can eat a sandwich every half hour. So I'm going to be a total of six subs, right? <laughs> six foot longs. <laughs> well, they're, they're telling me that they want you to try the wraps. That's the thing that they're telling me right now. You got to try the wraps. The wrap? Boy, I love a wrap. But what's, it, what's in the wrap, guys? Let's see, John. You're the subway expert. What do we got? We got probably some turkey, uh, perhaps uh, a little bacon. What, what do you got in a wrap, John? The good, the good one that I like, my favorite, is turkey, bacon, guacamole. That's that's the that's the good one. I'm not a big guac fan, though. I'm thinking about maybe a cheese. First of all, I've never met a wrap I didn't like. What I'm the one I'm worried about. But I would like a cheesesteak wrap. That would be good. We could do that. Do you have one of those, Johnny? Yeah, we could do that for you. You must have that. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, I can tell you one thing. Saying Keensburg, New Jersey, and something being good, that's uh, that's a miracle in itself, that uh, something good there coming out of Keensburg, New Jersey, the beautiful gateway. That is so cold. The beautiful. I had a problem with a Keensburg cop one time. I was telling John about it. God, I can't remember his name. He was a real dork director. <laughs> we were having a wrestling show and the promoter had put my name on it but then I wasn't actually on the show which is kind of like breaking the law but the cop couldn't have cared less I mean it just it was of no consequence to him whatsoever couldn't have cared less well, that's the cop you know now forgive me if I'm wrong here but is that the first time that's ever happened in the wrestling business where somebody may have been falsely advertised oh my goodness <laughs> yeah that was the first time it ever happened that's why they always got to put, what do they put on the programs? Card subject change? Yeah. Because it's never, yeah, nobody ever shows up. Especially now, the old guys, you know, like three or four of us won't show up for every show. It's amazing what everybody does. <laughs> well, with talking about the Jersey Shore and talking about New Jersey, obviously when we think of you, we think of Atlantic City, New Jersey, and we think of so many great things that you did in that crew of yours. We're going to hit some of the highlights here tonight, but – I got to say, just, you know, to get it out of the way, full disclosure, so you can beat me up as much as you want. I, I'm such a huge fan of yours going back to the 1980s and being one of those guys that we got to see and, and be larger than life. When I look at my television now, and I don't really watch wrestling to begin with, I think that's what's missing. But what was it about that era, Bundy, that we really loved about you guys and just you took our attention? I don't, I don't know. I, I asked myself this, and I always swore when I was younger, I wasn't going to be one of these old guys that was running down the business the way it is now. And But then, you know, like John Lennon said, I cannot be what I'm not. I just think there's no more, there's no more characters anymore. All the guys seem to be, seem like they're alike, you know what I mean? So similar. And I never watch wrestling anymore, so I don't know. But uh, I just think of, uh, I don't know how good the business is right now, but I know that they can't go to Madison Square Garden every month. And they used to do it a matter of Bruno sold it out like 129 months in a row or something. And now you're drawing from millions of people and you can't, can't go there once a month. It just seems like the wrestling business should be doing so much better than it is. And if, I don't, if it is, in fact, not doing that well, which I don't think it is. You know, one, one barometer I use, I mean, I don't do that like I used to, but you know, I think about the wrestling t-shirts. Remember when Stone Cold was hot? Every other T-shirt you saw out there, there was a Stone Cold shirt. And now I can 
can't remember the last time I was out and I saw a wrestling t-shirt. Yeah, that's a great point. No, that's true. And it, it's odd because, you know, revenue-wise, if you want to look at stocks and you want to be a Wall Street analyst, the WWE stock is at an all-time high as they're selling, you know, their their SmackDown television rights for $100 billion or the hell, or $1 billion, whatever the hell it was that they did with Fox this past week. And they're in Saudi Arabia making, you know, massive deals with the uh, the Saudi government. But the, the fan base is now just the hardcore fan base and those casual fans that you were always able to draw in. They just don't have an interest in wrestling. And I think it goes right back yeah. to the people performing. I think it's the, inter- the international markets have saved them, haven't they? Yeah. I think that's where most of their business gets done now. Cause I mean, they've got the whole country. And like I said, I, I always say you can't go to Madison square garden once a month. They said, you said the stocks at an all time high. Yeah, yeah, the stock is unbelievable wow. because of this deal that they just made with Fox to sell SmackDown to for it's. I think it's a five year deal that they just uh, they announced this week. And uh, you know, obviously, if you're going to buy in, you know, you buy in now, uh, or you had bought in, you sell now. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable because I don't see that that crossover appeal. Now, there's a lot of coverage of wrestling in, in non traditional wrestling uh, venues. You know, like a like a Forbes or a Sports Illustrated or you know maybe even even the ESPN, but to see you guys, it was what the world was watching. But you can go find somebody who's not a wrestling fan and they know who King Kong Bundy is. I don't think they can pluck somebody off WWE television now and know who they are. You know, in five, ten, fifteen years down the road. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. I just I, I don't know. I, I didn't know they were doing so well, but I, I always thought there'd be some kind of big financial meltdown that doesn't mean it's not going to happen still but uh i'm I'm surprised i didn't know they made a billion dollar deal with with, uh, fox said yeah that's amazing but they've got they've got the world the world is their oyster you know what i mean they have wrestling for the world it's like like the nfl you know it's all theirs Maybe they don't want to go to these towns every month. I don't know. I don't know. I guess the guys are making money, the top guys, but I don't know if the bottom guys are making any money. You know, like like they used to make some you know, decent money. I remember when I started, I used to go to Allentown and Hamburg. Every three weeks, we'd do three television tapings each night. And, of course, I was a big young kid. I got beat three times a night, and I got $50. So in other words, I was paying to wrestle. Now, you know, I know it's all part of the paying your dues concept, but I don't think you should have to lose money to go and wrestle three times. I mean, they could have given us a hundred or one hundred and twenty-five dollars. You know, we could have afforded McDonald's. If we had McDonald's now, it was on us. It's come out of our pocket. I mean, back then, you know, it was uh, at least they do get better by the what they call the job guys. I think they get a couple hundred bucks a night now which they certainly deserve because, you know, they're keeping things going. You used to call them, why do they call a job guy a carpenter? They call them carpenters because they build houses. I want to just, if we can, just say, kind of focus in on Vince because, like I said, he called it what the world was watching back in the day. And now you guys did travel all across the country. You started to go over into some of the overseas markets. But do you think this is what Vince was envisioning for you guys back in the 80s, was to get to this level uh, of their worldwide exposure, even though you guys started to, you really, you you were the carpenters, you laid the groundwork for it. Right, exactly. I love the carpenters. (laughs) I was ashamed of it. I love their music. 
Yeah, I don't know. That was always, you know, Vince's plan, International Conquest, or if, if that was uh, just came out of necessity, things was, you know, weren't as good domestically, so he had to do it. I don't know. I said, well, what is the stock at? You said it's an all-time high. It used to be around $10, $12 a share, didn't it? What is it now? $57 as of today. You're kidding me. Yeah. Oh, my God. I am shocked by that. And everybody says the wrestling business is on its ass. That's all I hear from people. But if you look at the ratings, you look at Raw and SmackDown ratings, they're they're like at an all-time low. So it's weird that the stock would be up, but nobody's really watching. I don't know how they like, how it's possible. It almost doesn't make sense. Uh, I thought you were going to say Raw and SmackDown are all-time highs. They're at all-time lows. Yep. All-time. How is that? Well, obviously the money's coming from somewhere because, you know, they wouldn't have that kind of stock. My God, I thought it was 10 12 bucks 12 a share. $57. Up there in Microsoft range. What would Microsoft today? You guys got your stuff there. What did Microsoft close at today? I don't know. I thought Microsoft was up towards ninety bucks. I thought I could be. Oh, was it? Yeah, I'm probably thinking a while back. It's been so long since I had any money to invest. I'm going back prices twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, now, yeah, well, hey, good for that. I just hope the guys are making some money. Sounds like Vince. So what's he have like? million shares or something? Oh, yeah. No, he has millions he, of shares. What am I talking about? He has millions. I think wasn't his net worth before like $700 million. Now, as of yesterday, his net worth is $2.3 billion, and Ted Turner's net worth is only $2.2 billion. So now he, he's even a bigger billionaire than uh, billionaire Ted. This is richer than Ted Turner. Yeah, as of yesterday. Wow, yeah. that's, that's unbelievable. Wow. Yeah, because I remember that. I thought I'd heard, I'd read somewhere that he was worth like seven hundred million. But like I said, if that's when the stock was ten or fifteen. Now it only makes sense. He's worth that. Wow, that's incredible. Vince is a billionaire. Mm. Pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. But it, it feels yeah, like during during your heyday, you know, obviously, you know, WrestleMania one, you <laughs> squash SD Jones. Vince is really, really building it up and it's really starting to go national. It's really starting to go global. But I feel like that Hogan era, if you look at the actual dollars, you know, you could say the revenue's up, but the actual profit during that Hogan era is their probably their highest profit. Maybe Austin era very close as well. But can you believe, you know, the amount of money that you guys are making running three towns a night, you know, basically oh. the rock and wrestling era? Imagine the amount of money we were making. Yeah, you're saying we weren't making any money compared with the guys we're making now. Is that your point? I no, no. It. I'm saying that I feel like that you guys were making a ton. Now it seems like Vince is pocketing all this money. But it's uh, like- we never, we never made a ton. What do you, I don't know who told you that, but no, we never made a, we never made a ton of money. No, I mean we make good money, but what, what's you know. Guys nowadays are making a million dollars. Some of them. I read the other day that Chris Jericho is worth seventeen million dollars. Hmm. He he would have been called a good little worker back in the day, which means you know he's good in the ring, but he's never going to draw you a dime. And now it's 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 a little man's business. It's amazing what's going on. But I think the hottest the business ever was, I would say, was the Stone Cold and the Rock time. And then the second hotter was Hogan's run. That's my opinion. 
what I've seen. And what was it like with you and Hogan? Because obviously, you know, you guys wrestled in New Japan before, and, and I'm not sure if he was comfortable with you or if he liked you um, at, at that point. But obviously, they really liked you in the WBF because the big WrestleMania 2 main event was you and Hogan in the steel cage. Well, you know, I've, I've told this story a lot of times, and obviously you guys haven't heard it, but Hulk got me my job the WWF. I was set to go work for uh, Vern Gagne up in Minneapolis. It was still a viable territory, but it was going downhill fast, like all the territories. And uh, I was set to go up there, and then I met Hulk in Japan, and he talked to me about coming. He called Vince for me, you know, greased the skid there for me to go in there. Because I would, it was it was great going there. I would much rather do that than go to yeah, I always figured you want you want to wait till they call you, and you know. But uh, meeting Hulk in Japan, he thought we could have you know some good matches together. I guess because we did over there, and he helped me with my deal over there. And he, like I said, he got me in the door over here. Hulk was very good to me. I mean, people say you know Hulk Hogan's changed. I don't know, but all he ever did was help me. That's all I can say. And these idiots like the honky tonk man that run him down. You know, he got, he saved the honky tonk man's life. He was up in Calgary and Vince got, you know, I mean, uh, Hulk got Vince to bring him in. So, you know, these guys, a lot of ingrates in the wrestling business, I guess, in any business. Absolutely. Uh, and obviously Hogan was huge, obviously, in that era. I mean, he was the man. So anybody that was feuding with him automatically became a huge star. And then right. you, know, you topple in WrestleMania on top of it and you were, one of the largest stars, especially in that yeah. era. I mean, you were one of the you know one of the big dogs. Yeah, yeah, there's there quite a few of us. Yeah, I was one of them, I guess. Yep. So sorry, you're not going to be there, Chad. I am That's not. Insane, I, you're going to you're going to miss an event. Why don't you rent a charter jet and come in just for you know. <laughs> well, I mean, I could possibly take a you know a helicopter, land dramatically on the boardwalk there in Keensburg, hit a couple rides, you know, and then come down and enjoy a couple raps there with uh with with King Kong Bundy and my uh, my tag team partner there, John. But you know, I also uh, you know I don't want to ruin the fun between the two of you, so I might just get in the way. That's true. That's true. Third wheel making our way, right, Johnny? <laughs> That's very true, John. Is John still here? Is, I, I, see, I, I don't think I can tell if I've seen you guys' voices yet. Is there a boardwalk in Keensburg? Keensburg? Yes. Oh, yeah, Keensburg. Oh, I, I, did, I did not know that. Ah, uh, they have rides? Yes. Ah, uh, I didn't know that. I guess I should have thought up northern Jersey has their shores like we do down here in Southern. See, I was, my guy was like Wildwood when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I mean, my kid was young. We always went to Wildwood. God, we loved it. See, it's weird. Keensburg is where a lot of people moved from, like, if you lived up in, like, the, the more northern part of New Jersey and people were starting to migrate more south, Keensburg was an original shore town. Just the makeup of it has changed throughout the years in, in certain ways, not where Subway is. That's, of course, very beautiful. But... So the makeup of the area changed a lot, but it's the gateway to Sandy Hook. You know, Sandy Hook, the famous beach there on the Jersey Shore. It's only about 15 minutes south of where uh, the, the Keensburg subway is going to be, where King Kong Bundy is going to be this coming Saturday, May 26th, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Make sure you get out there, folks. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. And I guess, you know, I, I don't know how much time we have left here, but I, I just got to throw something out really quickly. 
And, you know, as much as we loved you in that era, I mean, it was really hard to see somebody like you be gone. So did you just, did you, did your contract run out? Did you decide to step away from Vince in around 87, 88? I, I, around, I guess it was beginning of 89, I think. I think I was there through 88. I was working for a computer company, which basically killed my career in the WWE because it kicked Vince off so bad. I I meant to take off for a year. I was going to take off for a year year and a half, it wound up being like five years. You know, I got divorced. I, I bought a bar, you know, all those things you do, and that failed miserably. And, uh, you know, all those things, too. It wound up being longer than I thought. And uh, I should have gone to WCW when I came back, but I'd had a match with ECW. Vince, they called me. He told me he was going to do something with me, which was a total lie. But, uh yeah. But I remember talking to people, like when I was doing working for a computer company. Not long after that, after I left, and I'm saying that the two aren't related to each other, but the business was down quite a bit. I guess it would have been in '89. I remember talking to a few of the boys that ran into them while I was working for the computer company, and they were telling me how the payoffs were down, this and that. I think there were some hard times here. Guys, I gotta get going. It's been fun, but uh, I gotta get to bed pretty soon. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not a young guy. Well, we will see you this coming Saturday at the Kingsburg Subway. Great. We're giving away autographed pieces of wrestling history: me versus Hulk Hogan, me versus Andre the Giant, me versus the Undertaker, and it's all compliments of the Kingsburg. The Kingsburg or Kingsburg? Kingsburg. Kingsburg. Kingsburg Subway. So. It's on them. Come out and get a few. Get one for your cousin, for your brother, for you know your uncle Betty. You know maybe congratulations on her sex change operation, whatever. <laughs> but be there at the Kingsburg Subway this Saturday from twelve to three. Thanks for listening to the two man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.